0: The worst is if you spend all your money on building what you think is the perfect system, only to learn that actually you had the same amount of tech debt, and now you don't have any customer revenues, you can't afford to go fix it. So, you know, don't worry about building a product that's going to cover every use case at the beginning. It's not what you're optimizing, or it's not what you should be optimizing for.
1: Welcome to SaaS origin stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves.
2: Hey folks, today I have Alex Levin from Rego. He's the CEO over there. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So Alex, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Like how did you come up here? Like your story before you start this company?
0: Yeah, of course. So my co-founder and I both have similar backgrounds. Actually, we went to liberal arts schools for undergraduate degrees. And uh, after learning a lot about academia, but not a lot about the professional world, we both went to you know financial services and consulting organizations, which taught us a lot and eventually made the decision to switch into startups. And so I switched into smaller startups, and my co-founder, after business school, went to uh, Amazon, actually. And then we worked together at a startup called Handy. We started there when it was doing about a million dollars in revenue. And we eventually got acquired and put together with some other startups. And by the end, our boss was the CEO of the combined entity, and we were doing about a billion and a half in revenue. So an interesting experience over... About six years to go from a million dollars to a billion and a half dollars in revenue and, you know, quite a different scale. But, you know, our whole career really had been in B2C companies. We never really worked B2B. And, you know, we'll talk about it more, but eventually we had this idea for a business that was a B2B business. And, you know, the thing I tell people is I wish 10 years ago someone had tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, forget B2C businesses. There's this thing called B2B SaaS that's the greatest business model ever. You know, it's highly predictable revenue, very high margin, and you can be very close to your customers and what they need. So we're glad that we made the switch and we founded the company about two and a half years ago now.
2: So even in that company that you guys were working together uh, with the founders and you grew that company from 1 million to 1 billion, was that a B2C company?
0: Yeah, all B2C. We had, there was a business that I ran within the company, the company's called Angie, it's a public company now. So it was a business that I ran within it that specifically sold software and services to big brands. So we had a small B2B arm, but 90% of the business was B2C.
2: Nice. So you and your founder were both working at this organization. You learn a lot together and you thought, let's live and start our own business in the B2B space. So tell me a little bit about how was that transition? How did you guys come up with the idea and a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, for sure. We, you know, I think both liked working in early stage companies, first of all. You know, there's two sides to that coin, you know, on one side, you know, uh, there's lots of new things every day. And every time you turn over a rock, there's new opportunities. The flip side of it is there's, you know, things that are less organized and maybe it's a bit more of a roller coaster than working in a big company and a bit less steady. But but we enjoyed that. And so actually, by the time Angie got quite big, uh, it wasn't as much fun for us. You know, it wasn't the, the thing we wanted to be doing every day. We wanted to go back to the beginning and build. And as we thought about whether we wanted to go work on someone else's idea or our own, I think, you know, it became clear to us that we wanted the opportunity to set the company up the way we wanted it to be set up, uh, you know, to make sure the values were the ones that matter to us, you know, we'd always work for other founders, we wanted to be the founders ourselves, you know, that, I think, is an important set of realizations, you know, do you want to be at a company where you're going to build or maintain? And do you want to be the founder or not? There's no right or wrong answers to that stuff. But you know, you got to know yourself uh, well. From there, you know, it turned out, you know, we happened to come across like really a fantastic business based on our experience, so we got very lucky. Sometimes it takes people years, or they never find a business that that matches their skill set. So we ended up finding one pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I will say, you know, these days too many people force it, where you know they're businesses that they're not interested in, or they don't want to really understand that they get into, and it's a bad idea. The advice I was given early, which I think is helpful, is. You know, assume that for the rest of your life, at least for 10 years, but probably the rest of your life, mm-hmm. you're going to have to tell exactly the same story about what the business does. So if saying that again and again every day of your life does not excite you, don't go do this because it's going to be a disaster. You know, uh, don't do this for, you know, being in TechCrunch. Don't do this for being on a stage. Don't, because all that stuff is fleeting if it ever even happens, you know, whereas you're going to have to tell the story again and again. So then in terms of our specific experience, we, uh, you know, at Angie, were helping bring uh, the buying of home improvements online. And at the beginning, the premise that we would, it was that we would sell it much the way uh, people sold other things online, you know, with a picture of the service and a price and a review and it would all be digital. And, you know, in the same way you go on Amazon and buy a book, you would go on Angie and buy a service. It turns out that, you know, some people would do that, but the majority would not. And so actually, we found that the conversion rate online to buy something like a fence installation was worse than the traditional offline conversion rate. And as we sort of dug in trying to find ways of helping people buy these things online, we uncovered the fact that if the customer had a conversation with us, massively increased conversion. So we started just adding people to those teams, not for support, but for sort of think of it like a sales motion in B2C so we'd actually say, hey, you know, you have a house. Do you want a fence? Tell me what's going on. It wasn't a pushy sale, but still was, you know, an opportunity to talk to a prospect and help them decide whether or not they wanted to buy the product. We ended up building, you know, very, very large teams doing that. And I think the first realization was this wasn't an aberration. This wasn't a home services specific thing. You know, sure, there were a bunch of retail categories where you didn't need to talk to your customer. But a lot of the things that are coming online today, like healthcare, education, uh, local services, insurance, lending, have always had a human being involved in the onboarding. And when they moved online without that, you know, actually struggled. And so I've needed to find a way to bring that human being back into the onboarding process online. So this wasn't a home services thing, it was quite wide across what we consider high consideration categories today. The other thing we found is the software that, you know, has been built for customer support, you know, think of tools like Zendesk or tools like Nine are actually terrible at, at this B2C sales use case. And all the tools for B2B sales were meant for very high value, very complicated sales. When in, in our world, you know, we were doing very, very relatively low value, very transactional, high volume of sales with thousands of agents. So you know, a big you know B two B sales team might be a hundred people. We had thousands of people doing this. So uh, a very different kind of interaction required new software. You know, we built some custom software of our own, and eventually got smart and said, "Look, you know, we're never going to be experts at this at Angie. It's not our business to build the software. You know, we have a different business we have to go and do. Why don't we leave and start a business that's going to build the software b- for B two C sales teams and sell it to all these different businesses." Turns out there's about 5 million B2C salespeople. That's more than B2B sales, actually, which is crazy. <laughs> so there's only about a million or 2 million B2B salespeople and lots of tools for B2B sales. So, you know, we we left. And I think, you know, that's a hard first step to go out on your own. I think luckily we had been through the startup cycle a number of times, which gave us confidence to go out. But from the very beginning, our premise was, you know, listen to your customer. You know, if you make your customer successful, they will make you successful. So we weren't focused on revenue. We weren't focused on, you know, building fancy software or anything like that. We were very focused on listening to these customers that did B2C sales, figuring out what products they needed to make more money for their businesses, to make them more efficient, to you know, uh, reach more customers, to help agents do their job better, all these things. And as we got close to them and built those features, we were able to very quickly drive value for our customers from day one. So we could from day one say, because you're using Regal, you're driving more revenue. And that made it very easy for us to then quickly start selling more and building more product.
2: So let me summarize, and I have a couple of questions here. So basically you guys working at this company that's growing a lot, and you have this need to support your B2C salespeople because you realize that if they're talking to the customer, uh, conversion is increasing. And to support your internal team, you build custom software. you were like, oh my gosh, this is a huge opportunity. I don't want to be here just supporting our internal people. I want to go support business outside and we can turn this into a business. So you and your co-founder co- left to build that business. Is that a good summary? Yeah. Okay, so... I have two questions for you. First, tell me a little bit about actually what you guys were doing. Were you a developer, a product manager? Like tell me about the background of you and your founder and tell me about funding this company because now you left, like how did you fund it? Did you have, I don't know if you made any money when the company grew and got acquired as a key employee or like tell me a little bit about the funding but also your background.
0: Yeah, so both of us uh, were not engineers by background. We both were product managers actually at startups originally, and then rose up and became executives at these startups. But you know, had worked a lot with engineers and had quite a lot of experience on the business side as well and on the sales side. Where I think we were, you know, light at the beginning is we weren't the ones who were going to build the product. What we found is that was okay. You know, it was our our opportunity to really go and understand what we needed to build, what what you know customers actually were going to buy. So by the time we were actually hiring engineers, it was very clear what we were going to build. And, you know, we got very lucky early days and found some people to join us who were fantastic. And I think appreciated how much work we had put in and validating exactly what we were going to be building and exactly, you know, how people are going to be using it so that we weren't building something on spec. We were building something literally because a customer needed it. So it wasn't like a normal startup where we were going to build a product and not know if anybody was going to buy it. We literally had customers saying, "Build! I need to buy that immediately, build me that. And so it put us in a good situation from hiring engineering teams. I think as we thought about fundraising, at the very beginning, we funded it ourselves. Like It wasn't like we spent a lot of money, but we didn't go out and ask for money at the beginning because we wanted to prove to ourselves that it was a good business first. What people forget is the second you raise money from outsiders, you're stuck. People think of raising money from outsiders is a good thing. It's not at the beginning, right? Because once you raise that money, you're now stuck for a couple of years trying to get that thing to work. So much better at the beginning, spend less money, use your own funds if you can, and figure out, are you convinced that this is it, that this is a great business, that this is a business you want to spend 10 years in or more? The answer is yes, great. So you know we checked that box, got to the place where we were highly convinced that it was a good business. Um, the second thing is in terms of timing, we probably would have waited a little bit longer to to raise, but it was coming up on the 2020 election and no one knew what was going to happen if Biden won. No one knew what was going to happen if Trump won. It was a a very odd time if you think back to those days. So we said, look, we don't want to take election risk. Like we have plenty of risk in our startup, taking election risk is not one of them. So let's go and make sure we have at least a term sheet signed before the election happens. So no matter what happens, we're not impacted by that. So we went out to a few of the investors we had known for a long time. We were lucky in that sense; we knew them, and you know had the conversations we wanted, and you know raised some money pretty quickly. I'll say the mistake we made at that stage is we didn't have a good enough idea of which investors are already convinced of the thing that we did. So we spoke to a number of investors that we knew well and that who liked us, but who turned out were not very interested in this space, and that gave us a lot of negative signal when we should have been talking to investors that like the space, which would have given us positive signal faster. So the number one piece of advice I give when fundraising is, go find the people who are already convinced the thing you're going to do is right. So that they're not evaluating, is this a good opportunity or is this interesting? They're just evaluating you and your specific approach to that. If you find yourself walking into meetings with investors, having to convince them that the area you're working in is interesting, you've lost. It's very hard to move an investor... That much. If they already believe in the space, then all they're doing is going, okay, is within the space, is this the investment I want to make? That's the position you want to be in. So obviously, we met some investors we knew like that, and so we're able to raise quite quickly. But it was you know, hard to talk to people who didn't believe in, in the fact that there was any reason to talk to customers in B2C. When my look back, we never should have. When we ultimately raised Series A, we were very careful. We only went to three or four investors. We knew believed in this model. We knew we were very smart about it. And so as soon as they saw what we were doing, they were great. And so we raised Series A even faster than we raised C.
2: That's a great insight. i like to take a step back when you're talking about like in the beginning, you're using your own money because you don't want it to get like attached to something before you really believe. So how did you use your money at that stage? Like did you hire developers? Did you hire designers? Like, and did you build a version of one of your product? Walk me through that stage, pre-investors. What have you done that prepare you there?
0: Yeah. So a couple of just technical things. So when you're that early, you can put your money in exchange for equity if you want, but you own 100% of it. So it's kind of a silly thing to do. What, what I recommend to people is actually get your lawyer to write something explaining that the money you're putting in is, is a loan. And that if you ever raise money, the company will pay you back that loan. If you don't raise money, cool, you've lost that. But if you raise money, you get the money back out. And so you're not out any money. So I think that's a very good structure to use at the beginning. It costs you a little bit of money to have your lawyer write that page, but quite simple. And then turns out we were spending the money. You know, we weren't taking any salaries, so it wasn't on us. You know, it was at the very beginning, like m- basically engineers and designers. It wasn't us going out and hiring business people. You know, because we were doing all the selling, we were doing all the support, we were doing all the finance, we were doing all the accounting. There was nobody else, right? We were doing all the HR. So, you know, we wanted to go out and find some engineers that, you know, we thought were going to be able to help us bring this to life. And so that's where most of the money went. And we would have kept doing that, like I said, had the election not spooked us a little bit. And we probably would have raised even later had the election not spooked us.
2: And, and how long did it take you guys to build a version one of your product?
0: We built a first version in three months. And when I say first version, it was, you know, bare bones. Like we weren't trying to go out and build a perfect product we were trying to go out and prove the answer to a hypothesis. So we had this hypothesis that building certain types of features would enable these customers to drive incremental revenue. And so to prove that, instead of building from scratch, we used a lot of existing tools because it allowed us to move much more quickly. And we were hooking up existing tools together with the engineering resources we had so that we could go to customers, they could use it, see whether or not it drove revenue, and then we could make the next decision. So I think that's one of the other big mistakes I see people make is they'll spend a year building some product from scratch before ever showing it to customers. And then they show it to customers and find out that they were wrong with their hypotheses and spend a year building the wrong thing. So shortcut that year, start showing people a deck at the beginning, start showing people a product that you've built by hooking together some existing things long before you're ever going and building something from scratch. That's definitely a, a great advice. And so when
2: you raise money, did you have a product beyond that the initial MVP that was ready for the custom, Where were you at this?
0: We actually had a little bit of a product being built, but we didn't show it to investors. So at the very beginning, we raised money. Literally, we showed them a PowerPoint deck and that was it.
2: That's amazing. And how did you get your first customers, your first few customers? What worked for you guys?
0: So, you know, it was it was my co-founder and I going out to people. I think the, the sort of odd thing that nobody believes me until they go through it. The odd thing is, your friends are probably not great early customers. The reason is that like they will want to be nice to you and you're gonna say, oh, are you gonna buy this thing? And they're like, oh yeah, it's great. I love it. I love it. It's so wonderful. <laughs> and especially if you don't make them pay for it, you know, they're not gonna tell you the truth that it's terrible or that they're not gonna use it or that mm-hmm. there's only one of the features yeah. that they're gonna use. So, you know, first of all, don't necessarily think of your friend your closest friends as your first customers. Second, like I would usually recommend, it's different by business, but I would often recommend actually charging people something for it to make sure that they're more invested in it. You can give them a discount, but make sure that they're paying something for it. So they're not just taking this to be nice to you. The best is actually like friends of your friends or people that you're like kind of connected to, but don't know. So, like, get somebody to introduce you to somebody, get an investor to introduce you to somebody, go on LinkedIn and find somebody who's connected to you through a friend and like say, hey, we both know the same person, let's chat. That's great because there's some reason for them to listen to you and believe you, but they don't know you enough to be nice to you. So they're going to be very, <laughs> brutal. What you're looking for in those days, you know, if somebody's saying like, you know, you, you ever heard the expression damning by faint praise, somebody's saying vaguely nice things. That's not it. You're looking for somebody literally to come across the table and pull you and say, I need that tomorrow. And they're not going to say that about everything you're proposing. Of the 12 things you think you're going to build, there's going to be like one that they're going to do that to if you're lucky. That's it. You want to find that thing where they're going, I don't care about the rest of what you said, that. And you're going to have some other message you want to tell them. And you're going to tell them that there's five other things. Stop. Just listen to the customer. So I think if you don't find that, like don't go and start building stuff. Like wait until you find something that people are, you know, by looking at a deck or pulling you across the table saying they want. If you don't find that, you're either talking to the wrong customer or you're showing them the wrong product or something's off. But once you find that, I think you're in good shape. I agree with you, for sure. And lot, one thing that you said is sometimes it's not the
2: wrong product, it's the wrong customer. You have to know like where to adapt. Should I try a different kind of customer should I try a different product? Because sometimes it's just the, the wrong uh, person that doesn't need that product.
0: Yeah. Being an early stage founder is a very difficult combination of being true to the vision that you have and the insight that you have, while being flexible enough to listen to feedback and know when to take the feedback and switch. So when a customer tells you they're not interested, basically, is that because you're wrong with the product or they're the wrong customer, or you're right about customer and product, but you just didn't, you know need to find a different one? You know, That's one of the hardest parts about being an early stage founder, And, you know, there's no answer as to exactly how to solve that. I think, you know, what I usually suggest to people is, you know, go have 100 or 200 conversations before you make that decision. So literally 100 or 200, not like three, not five, not 10, like, you know, go have the time, you're not paying yourself anything, go have those conversations, and it'll give you a better idea and give you enough information to make the decision as to, are you right on product? Are you right on the ideal customer profile? Um, Are you ready to go forward to the next step?
2: for sure Talk, talking about those challenges what is the first oh shit moment that come to mind from the early days of your SAS
0: we were lucky so you know everything you know went according to plan for us to give you some order of magnitude you know i think best in class companies usually take a year to a million in revenue and then a next year to 3 million we went to a year within a year we were at a million in ar and within 2 years we were at you know 9 or 10 million in ar so we much more quickly took off than companies typically do. You know, I'd say we're in the five or ten fastest growing companies of our stage um, in the United States. So, you know, by and large things went right. You know, that said, it's still a roller coaster. So the advice I always give people at a high level is is two things. One, don't do it alone. Like you don't have to find a technical co-founder, but go find a co-founder. Find somebody that you're gonna, you know, trust through all of this. That, that you're going to like, you know, be able to tell horror stories to when things go bad and, and tell, you know, successes to when things go well. Because if you don't have that person, you're going to go insane. So definitely have that co-founder. And the other thing is, you know, even when you have these big highs or these big lows, the advice I always give people is, look, if something bad happens, it's likely something good is going to happen next. Or if something good happens, just tell yourself, you know, don't worry, something bad is going to happen next. So it's never as good as it seems and it's never as bad as it seems. Life goes on. And I think that, you know, Rebecca and I, my co-founder and I've been through the startup cycle enough that we're pretty even keeled about all this stuff. You know, early days, sure, not everything went right, but nothing happened that really sort of put us off our our lunch, so to speak.
2: That's amazing. And you're right. Like, I think as you get more experience, you start to learn about not to be so phased out by the highs or by the lows. It's like what shows like... More mature founder. That's they're not so emotional, right? Oh my gosh, that's we're gonna out of business. We are amazing. Like both emotions when they go high, kind of like it's a problem for your decision making and how you're gonna be running your business.
0: Yeah, and our specifically is that what makes you know companies great is the day to day execution. I think you know other people have different you know takes on how to build great businesses. You know, for us, it's You know, every day coming in, doing good work, executing quickly, you know, making decisions as well as you can, as fast as you can and continuing moving forward. And I think, you know, within that approach, like, you know, you can't get too stressed by all this stuff. You have to just keep going and doing things well.
2: Yeah, Let's talk more about making decisions. Could you share like a very smart decision that you made to help you guys be where you are today?
0: All the good decisions are, you know, thanks to the team that we have around us, all the bad decisions are our fault. But a good decision, you know, early stage, I mean, examples of good decisions, you know, making sure we talked to a lot of customers before we went live, you know, not overbuilding the product, you know, not hiring any business people at the beginning so that Rebecca and I had to go do everything ourselves. I think a lot of people hire business people too fast and get too far away from the product. We basically only had engineers till after a million dollars in AR. That's a great advice. Actually, so even we had one or two after that, but until three million, really, we had no business people. There were no salespeople until three million at all entirely. We had no marketing people until nine million in AR. So, like you know, it's better if you stay close to this stuff yourself, and you're not handing it off until you've you know gotten to it a place gotten into a place that you like it. So, was our founder led marketing?
2: Sales was all founder-led. You guys are doing all that up to three million dollars. Well, marketing until nine million, or even until nine million, you guys are like making all the marketing decisions.
0: Are you using agencies? Like what you're doing up to? Well, largely we didn't do marketing. You know, when, when, when you say the founders are doing it, largely the answer is you're not doing much of it. But uh no, we really weren't doing much marketing. We were going to a few conferences. We were, you know, obviously we had a lot of like um, referral business, so customers would refer other customers. We were doing, you know, some very simple, you know, things, but not much.
2: But how are we attracting customers all the way to 9 million? What work to attract those customers?
0: Customer referrals and a few conferences.
2: <laughs> That's amazing. And how about a blunder that that you guys made? How about a blunder that we made? Yeah, like you just talk about a smart decision, but how like about a bad decision, a blunder?
0: Like I said, we luckily haven't made too many bad decisions. And I think where we do make bad decisions, we, we sort of fix them very quickly. So, you know, what are examples? You know, we've sometimes taken on the wrong kind of customers. So especially early days, there's a tendency to take anybody as a customer. And maybe it's a good thing. You kind of learn about them. But by and large, it's the wrong decision. Like you should stay true to exactly who is the customer you should you really want, and only accept them as a customer and only serve them. Because the second you have somebody who's not quite your right customer, they're not as happy. You're not you're gonna, you're not going to serve them as well. If you build product for them, it's the wrong product because there's other people that are you know going to need something different. So I'd say, if anything, those were the biggest mistakes: is serving people that we should never have served as customers, and eventually, you know it comes to roost, where they're unhappy or it's bad for us one way or another. Makes total sense.
2: You also touch on overbuilding. What are the implications, in your opinion, of overbuilding a product, like building too much or engineering?
0: Yeah, I mean, a couple different things. So first of all, like, you know, just wasting time before you ever show something to a customer, like show them something faster, whether that means showing it in a deck or a very early version of something. Almost always you could have shown something faster to customers. Which allows you to get feedback and then you know help you decide what to do next. I think where where you can get feedback from customers that's exactly the thing that's going to help them achieve their goals. Then when you're building the feature, you know exactly what to do next. If you build you know a, a feature with engineering and you build it fully fledged and then you show it to customers, they're going to go, well, that I didn't like or that I didn't like, and you're going to have to redo it. So. You're gonna build it eventually. It's just the order in which you build it. So show it to customers faster rather than slower before it's a fully fledged product. You know, what's the expression if you're not embarrassed by it, like it's too late, like you've waited too long to ship it? That's very true. I'd say the other piece is at the beginning, there's the does often engineers have the desire to know what is a product gonna eventually become so they can make the right decisions early about, you know, how to set up your data structure, how to set up your you know, the the initial code. But the reality is you don't know. And so trying to be too smart about where you're going to be in the future results in engineers having to cover too many cases in the early days. And that means that they're slowing down every feature that you build before you even have a business. So instead, you know, either pick one very limited use case or, you know, force, uh, you know, people to build things faster without the ability to be able to be ready for every use case in the future so that you, again, can get the futures that are most important out. Are you going to create tech debt, as they call it? Of course. But no matter what, you're going to create tech debt. So you might as well move faster and create tech debt. And then at a later point, when you have a business that's worthwhile, take a certain percentage of your engineering team and start going and fixing it. The worst is if you spend all your money on building what you think is the perfect system, only to learn that actually you had the same amount of tech debt and now you don't have any customer revenues, so you can't afford to go fix it. So, you know, don't worry about building product that's going to cover every use case at the beginning. It's not what you're optimizing or it's not what you should be optimizing for.
2: If you could go back in time and meet yourself for like one hour before you guys start this business, what would you tell yourself?
0: Yeah, look, I, you know, I go way even back further, you know, coming out of school, you know, I understood that I was lucky. I understood that most businesses were technology businesses and sort of understood a little bit of that. But I wish, I think, sooner I had, uh, you know, gone to work for great founders. I think, you know, early days, if you can find early in your career company that's growing quickly with founders that are going to give you the opportunity to do new things, go take that up. You know, it doesn't matter what the job title is. It doesn't matter how much money they're going to pay you. You're going to learn so much from that. It's It's the most important thing to be doing. So I wish I'd been doing even more of that earlier. And then I, you know, I think sometimes, you know... I probably should have you know left some companies I was at sooner so once I knew that it wasn't going to be an opportunity where the company was gonna do well or I was gonna learn or you know there were going to be new opportunities to do interesting things I should have gone to the next thing faster you know I think my father for instance stayed in one job his entire career literally and so it's a little bit strange to me that like you know I've changed jobs so often you know and I, and I've stayed you know a couple years at least at most jobs so I think, you know, in general, I encourage people to stay at least 18 months, but after 18 months, if it's not the right fit, like, I think it is good to go and do the next thing.
2: Yeah. I, I see jobs as paid learning and the best kind of part of learning, I agree with you, especially if you are going to build a company, it's to work for the right founder because you're going to learn so much. And and you might even be able to, like, make some money in an exit because you might become a key employee and then you can use that money in the next venture uh but like you say if uh, after if after 18 months isn't going nowhere go to the next one
0: yeah the other version of this is you know people always underappreciate how big the winners will be so when i came out of school i you know i had friends who went to facebook friends who went to google and i had opportunities to go work you know in san francisco for some of these companies and i went oh you know facebook is already big google's already big you know and you know i missed huge opportunities to go do exciting things and learn from great people because I thought they had already hit their, their maximum. So, you know, you can still learn a lot from companies that, you know, have gotten to some scale, you know, if they're continuing to grow very quickly and if the people they're hiring really are great. So I think I missed some opportunities early that I should have taken.
2: For sure. And where's the company today? You definitely have been sharing things along the way. You share like 50 employees, you share how quick you got to over ten million dollars in revenue, but what else could you share about where the company is today? About sizing, yeah,
0: so we're it? now you know two, just two years in, so you know around ten million in AR, 120 employees, you know about 150 customers now. It, you know, it's a business that has a very high net dollar retention. So when customers start using us, they you know if they spend one dollar in year one, they'll spend more in year two, which is a phenomenal it speaks to the quality of the product and speaks to the revenue than the roi that they're driving from the product i think from a, a business perspective we're very lucky it's a very cash efficient business so even though we've raised 42 million dollars we've barely spent any of that and so there's an opportunity for us to not raise very much money on our way to 100 million in revenue for instance i'd say at this point this will sound preposterous perhaps to outsiders but you know it's all about you know convincing yourself i think' it's a v- you know, a very high likelihood that we can build a business that does 100 million in AR. And that's exciting. We have to go and execute against that. I think what we're starting to to figure out is, is this a business that could do hundreds of millions of dollars in AR? And I don't know yet. I think we'd have to prove quite a lot of new things in order to get to that scale. And it's just, we're not, we haven't proved that yet. And I think, you know, as we continue to grow, it's going to be important to what I said, to make sure that we believe that we can get to hundreds of millions of dollars in AR before we go and raise too much more money. You know, you want to prove it to yourself, like I said, before you go and try to prove it to investors and raise money.
2: That's definitely an exciting place to be. So you are very confident on the path for $100 million in revenue at this stage.
0: Yeah, it's going to take time. But, you know, we have the roadmap to get us to that level. You know, if somebody asked me, can you do a billion dollars in revenue? I, in theory, understand how we would, what we'd have to do to get there, but I don't know yet that that the business has the likes to do that. So, is there a book they recommend for every SaaS founder? So, personally, I really like these company histories. There's a lot of them. You know, there's ones about Tesla and Nike and uh, you know Snowflake. I think it's fascinating to see. You know, the the sort of takeaway I usually have is you know these companies are like you know a duck or a swan on water, right? Above the fold, as outsiders, it looks perfect, and you see this. You know, PayPal is this huge. Thing. Yes. And then you learn that actually PayPal underneath the water was this duck paddling like crazy just to like try and stay in the same place, doing insane things, you know, succeeding sometimes, failing a lot. And so I think it dispels this idea of like perfection, which is important. And so, you know, if you can read some of those books and take away from it that successful companies fail and fail fast and then recover fast. So that's I think really important learning. So You know, don't go and try and not fail. To the contrary, try and fail. Just do it really fast and a lot and learn from it.
2: Yeah, and try to fail in a way that you don't go out of business.
0: (laughs) In a controlled way, right? (laughs) I don't know. The Amazon concept around this is called sort of a one-way door or two-way door. You know, a one-way door is one where you go through it and you can't go back the other way. And sure, for decisions like that, which are the minority, you should be very careful, you know. Are we going to go and spend a large sum of money to buy a factory, for instance? Like that's a one-way decision, like one-way door decision, like think about it a lot. But most 90% of decisions are the two-way kind, where they're reversible. You shouldn't create too much process around them. You should empower people to make those decisions quickly. And you know, you should reverse them if they're wrong quickly.
2: Okay, Alex, this was a great show. Thanks for sharing the story and and your insights today. If people want to learn more about you and follow you, what's the best way to do?
0: Yeah. So please go to regal.io. Uh, you can learn more about product there and how it helps large B two C sales teams reach more customers, engage them in the right way, do it efficiently, and have the data to make great decisions about it. Uh, you can also email me at hello at regal.io. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by Dev Squad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS origin stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.